father plans an epic motorcycle adventure for him and his son to reunite, a sort of bonding adventure. I mean, what better way to create a bond than to ride together on a motorcycle adventure? It's the unpredictability of adventure that makes it so attractive to begin with. It's why we do it. But at times, well, probably more often than not, the outcome isn't what you imagined it would be before you started. This story today, it doesn't end like you would expect. But then again, maybe it's not over just yet. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. My name is Kevin Stratton. I live in Woodbury, Minnesota, and I currently work for the school system, helping some of the kids out that struggle. Minnesota. So uh, now I'm, I'm just going to go on a limb there and say there must be canoeing in the area. Well, I grew up and my heart still resides in Wisconsin. So I've got to be honest with you. I paddle a little bit in Minnesota, but pretty much Wisconsin's where I, I put my paddle in the water. Right. And you are heavily in love, have been <laughs> your whole life with canoes. Yeah, don't tell my wife this, please. But canoe is my first love. <laughs> oh, you're going that far? You're going to go on a limb like that? Because there's a chance, Kevin, that she could listen to this. You, you might want to rethink that. <laughs> because she I, already knows if it. I remember correctly, she did allow you to have six. I think it's you said six canoes in your backyard right now. I am down to six, correct? Right. But you're also a motorcyclist, and and it's it's pretty neat because you and I talking before we started doing this, we find out we're both canoeists, uh, diehard canoeists. So that that's pretty cool. And you got into when, when did you pick up motorcycling? You know, my father. It was shortly after I got my driver's license. So in Wisconsin at the time, once you get your driver's license, you just go on in and take a simple written test, and you can get your uh, permit, rider's permit. Um, I remember my father and my mother were arguing over me having a motorcycle or not. So they came to a compromise and limited me to a 200cc road bike, um, the Honda CM, I think it was called. And I proceeded to, to ride actually with my father. So your father was the rider. He's the one pushing. Your mom is opposed to it. 
Um, did she have a specific reason? Like, was it to do with you or just the generalities of motorcycling? Well, I, you got a lot of insight there. I, I do have the tendency to jump off the diving board first and then ask if there's water in the pool on my way down. So that's a mm. valid question. Um, and I do think just the general persona, how dangerous motorcycles are, quote unquote. Right. How did the Honda work out for you? You know, I loved it. I, the Honda did cure me though, from wanting small street bikes, that is, because you really want to be able to keep up with traffic and me being a larger guy, um, it didn't always want to go 55 miles an hour. And at times in my life, that was, I think, kind of a dangerous option to be driving it around. Mm. Yeah, especially if you get on the highways. It's funny you said cured you from it. Do you think that's something that needs, needs to be cured since people wanting small bikes for the highway? Uh, I, I do lots of riding and people all the time come up and they ask me, you know, what's the perfect bike or, you know, what bike do you think I should get and what, and everybody talks a smaller bike is, is the best bike to start on. And I do agree with that, but I also do agree that you need to look at where you're riding. And if you can't keep up with the current flow of traffic, it doesn't matter what motorcycle you have. I think you're a hazard to yourself and to other people. So um, that's kind of where that statement comes from. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You sort of said the same thing with canoes, because when we were talking before, you mentioned about someone asking you about which canoe to buy. And you said the first thing you got to look at is what's your plan? What are you going to use this thing for? And, and look at hull design before you start worrying about brands. And that makes a lot of sense as well, what you're saying about the motorcycle, because a lot of times when people talk about bikes here and they say, well, a small bike is great for travel because they're thinking of going to someplace like South America or Africa, and you're not traveling all that fast. But if, if you were to say, you know, you're going to travel across the United States or, or Canada or something, yeah, you, you may want to look at a bigger bike than the 200, 250, uh, even 400 sizes if you're planning to get out on those highways. That's the, the sort of the caveat, isn't it? It is. And I, I do get big bike shame sometimes. Since I've got into ADV riding, people um, continuously tell me, you know, hey, you're riding a too large of a bike. But I am a larger guy. And usually in the Wisconsin, in the United States, you have a two week vacation, or if you got a really good employer, sometimes you can go for three weeks. I need to be able to get across South Dakota, North Dakota, heaven forbid, drive across Saskatchewan again. Um, to have a larger bike allows you to be able to go at those inter those interstate speeds to be able to get to the location you wanted to go, then to be able to slow the bike down and to really be able to immerse yourself in whatever trip I'm on in that particular time. Are, are you sort of a, a practical thinker a lot of times? Very much so. Hmm. So when you're planning a trip or something like that, you, you're one of the people who like to sort of detail it out, figure out where you're going, how long it's going to take you, that sort of thing. We're kind of forced to because we have a timeline. Um, but I got to be honest with you, you know, I don't know how many trips they've worked out perfectly. I mean, something is always going to come up. Well, yeah, it doesn't. But no, I was thinking about, because you, you said about, you, you know, the type to jump off the diving board <laughs> and ask if there's water in the pool on the way down. I was thinking, well, you must have changed somewhat from when you were a kid. So your mom was probably, you know, she was right on the money. She was. I guess what it comes from is I can't tell you how many times I found myself in a rainstorm, unprepared, shivering and cold, trying to start a fire. How many times I found myself bobbing down a river, um, not knowing to lean downstream and there's an obstruction, how many times I found myself when I was younger, keep in mind, mm -hmm. um, on the side of the road because I, you know, I didn't check the air in my tires, all, all those little tiny mistakes. And this with each mistake comes maturity, unfortunately. Is that because of lack of knowledge 
or is it because you, you're not paying attention? It, because I'm, I get so excited on some of these things. I've done some rock climbing. I've done the devil's tower and I, I see the end goal and generally I die for it. And you have the skills for it or? Oh, I do believe over time I've honed the skills. Most of them are through mistakes. Mm, Interesting. So you, um, when did you get into adventure riding? It was about 2010. I didn't know it existed. I remember when I was younger, Honda made a motorcycle called the Transalp. And I remember the first time I laid eyes on that motorcycle, I just, I couldn't believe what they were promising and what it could be done, but I couldn't afford it at the time. And a few years later, uh, there was a BMW rally going on. I want to say it was out in Montana and I saw the, I think it was a 650 GS and it had Dakar written in blue across the side. Oh yeah. And I remember that I just, I, I just couldn't believe these motorcycles and how wonderful and the possibilities with them and what that would open up for me as a person and my love of travel. And I love to go camping. It's, it's top of my list. Uh, I came rushed home. And promptly came home and I saw the price of adventure bikes. So I bought an entirely different motorcycle <laughs> until I could save up the money and afford one. <laughs> you mean a street bike? I did. I mm-hmm. bought the Suzuki Bandit. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Mm-hmm. Now, how many kids do you have? I have two sons. Two sons. And are they into riding? Uh, at this point, I don't know if my older son is. And much to my wife's regret, my youngest son turns 14 here this weekend. So happy birthday, Connor. And he's starting to express a little bit of intrigue about it. So I get a lot of couch nights because of that. And your wife is not a rider? She's not opposed to riding. And she actually has ridden a couple of times on the back of the motorcycle. But again, she has that sense that motorcycling is dangerous and so her fear is if something happens to one of us, one of us can still raise the son. So she doesn't want to be together in a situation like that. Mm. Morbid, but, but practical um, thought process. She's a lot more practical than I am. So your oldest son, he got his license, I guess, following dad? In order to help keep his grades and um, kind of motivate him through school, I had bought him a Kawasaki Ninja 250 and said, Hey, if you keep your grades up, this is your motorcycle and I'll pay for the insurance and I'll do all that. And and this is your, this is your reward for doing a good job. Wow. So the 250 then, how long did he ride it for? He rode it right up until probably two weeks before we went on our big trip. Oh, wow. So that was a, what a gift. That's great. I mean, see, I actually stayed with it. So with, with the 250 riding, what sort of riding was it doing? Mainly close to home? By this time, my son's relationship and mine had become strained a little bit. So he lives in Minnesota. We call it the Iron Range is up on North, uh, way up in the North country. It was a 1950s mining town. The mine kind of ran out and some of the people just stayed up there. So our communication and knowing what his day-to-day activities were, weren't, wasn't really anything I knew about. I didn't even know how many miles he'd put on it or if it was even running at the time before I proposed this idea to him. What do you mean strained? For what reasons and how? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you don't have to answer. Uh, no, that's okay. That's fine. Uh, 
as a father, you, when you look at your children, you know, from the day that they were born, you know, throughout their entire lives, you, you want them to be, to be happy in life and you, you want them to move forward and you want them to be able to provide a life for their children better than what they have. And then you're trying to provide one better than what your father did to you or your mother. What, you know, um, and I saw his future as being education, a higher education. And I didn't care what it was. I wanted him to go to some kind of a school. It could have been a trade school. It could have been a, a college. It, it, it was anything. And he was pretty adamant. He wasn't going to do that. And I'd even had a college fund set up for him. So, all he had to do was just walk in and sign the paperwork and he could have become anything he wanted to become. And he chose not to. And I think I kept banging on that drum to the point where he just refused to kind of talk to me at most times. Mm. You decided to plan a trip to reconnect. Can you talk about that? So I bought the motorcycle in 2012, and I hadn't really been bitten by the ADV bug yet. Um, I don't know where I came across it, but somewhere I've heard of this place. It was called the Dalton Highway, and you got to get up to Purdue Bay, and it was like a badge of honor for motorcyclists. And I have no off-road experience. I didn't know anything about it, but I had this this shiny new V-Strom. But when the winter had turned that day, um, my ex-wife was calling me back when we had the T9 phones and she was texting and calling and I was doing something with my younger son. He was like two at the time, give or take, and, you know, putting the shoes and the snow pants on and she just wouldn't stop and wouldn't stop and wouldn't stop. And finally I just picked up the telephone and I did the, you know, when you're frustrated and you're not thinking clearly, I did the what? And she informed me that my son had been a victim of a very horrible, he had been involved in a really horrible violent crime and he was, he was stabbed several times in the chest and the stomach. He was on the way to the hospital and told me my son was probably going to die. Was this at school? No, he was living in an apartment at the time. Um, and some company had come over and I don't know if we'll ever get all the facts, but I think this company had, uh, he was under the influence of some kind of a, a drug and, uh, my father and my son and I, we all hunted together every year. So he had a, a cabinet in his house and it was locked up and the guns were locked in there. And this individual wanted the guns and my son was trying to prevent him from getting access to them. What happened? Uh, he, the perpetrator grabbed a steak knife out of the kitchen and proceeded to thrust it into my son several times. My son grabbed his girlfriend at the time, headed down the stairs. They lived on the second floor of a duplex um, got himself into the car, somehow got himself to the door of the emergency room. I don't know how he did that, and then passed out. And 
nobody knew any more information. It was 14 below, and I lived five hours away. I had to drive to go see him. I didn't grab a coat. I didn't grab a cell phone charger. I, I didn't grab anything. I just, just went to go see him. And what happened when you, when you got to the hospital? It was a long three weeks. Um, tubes were in and out. Um, he was on breathing apparatus. Uh, it, was, it was very long. Um, there were days when he felt like fighting and we were moving in directions, and there were other days when he was too exhausted. My father and I have always had a spectacular relationship, which is something I wanted with my, with my son. Um, and eventually he did fly all the way up from Texas to meet with me. And then we would take shifts and we would do whatever the hospital staff told us. And in the end, uh, he did have a f- full recovery, but that, um, as a father, that's, I, um, I, sorry, it's just, it's, I've never told the story from beginning to end. People have gotten snippets of it. So it's a little bit more difficult to tell it in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine going through it and there has to be all kinds of underlying things in there with you, with you not having a, a good relationship with him at the time as well. It was horrible. It was just, you want to feel like the worst father in the world at that time. It's yeah, it was. And then, you know, my ex-wife was there and of course, there's a reason we were divorced, so we didn't get along. And um, then I'm in a basically a foreign land, and it's yeah. You stayed there for the yeah. full three weeks. I did. Oh. I wouldn't leave. Um, my wife is beautiful as she is. She just said, "You have a credit card, and do what you got to do to help your son." Mm-hmm. So when this is happening, you know, is is this where you're, you're trying to make a plan, trying to to come up with something that, um, that's uh, certainly going to repair the relationship? My hope was, is he would see his dad's way. Of course, that's always a dad's fault. Um, And that he would go to school. So my gift to him from graduating college was going to be, uh, trying to bicycle across America. But in the previous year, I'd harmed myself with a pretty severe back injury. So that was gone. So that was always something that I talked to him about. It was always something we kind of pseudo had planned inside of our minds is something that we were going to attempt to do. Um, but in lieu of the two most recent medical incidents between him and me, that wasn't going to be a viable option. And I don't know how I found out about the Dalton, but that suddenly is the one that rose to the surface. <laughs> Connor is your other son. What is this son's name? Kale is the older son. Kale. So, um, you know, Kale, obviously, you know, he, he got the bike from you. That must've been amazing. Um, what was it you didn't get along on? Was it, was it just that the, the education thing, just your thing of you wanted him to, to go on to further education and, and, and he didn't want to and sort of that, that's the dividing point. I don't know if you ever know as a father, you know, we're all our own individuals and we've all got our own thoughts and we all got our own perceptions. I, to this day, I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. 
talk about the idea, how you come up with the idea to, to do this trip with him. Well, eventually that job that I had at the time turned south. He was jumping from minimum wage job to minimum wage job. And I started planning this trip. And when I, I can't remember, he talked to me about something and he'd lost the most recent minimum wage job that he'd had. So I said, Hey, why don't you, why don't we find you a motorcycle and you, and we go on this trip together. And he agreed. Did, did he get the idea that it, that it was, um, that you're thinking it's a father son bonding trip or, or did he get the idea of what you were after with the trip? Hindsight is telling me no. Uh, if that makes sense, you know, where our relationship is at today. Um, As a father, I had my blinders on. So that was the only thing that I saw. So what did you do? What, what, what bikes did you get and, and what, did, what trip did you set up? So he's not as, I'm a large guy. Um, he's not as large as I am. So we struggled with what motorcycle. We knew that the Ninja 250 wasn't going to make it. Um, that was clear. Uh, so he ultimately ended up finding a, another V-Strom, a 2007 one. It was a 1,000cc model, which I thought was a bit large because he's 5'7", five 5'8", foot five foot and he didn't have the road experience. He did take the safety class and all that, but he didn't have the experience that I did on a motorcycle. And he bought it. I wasn't there. We bought it over the telephone, and he traded in his, his Suzuki, and then he came down to the to the city to meet with me and we were going to leave um, in August of that year. I had a wedding the day before I was the best man. At, so I was the best man at the wedding. And then I woke up in the morning and left for Alaska. So you guys are you're heading off. So did it work out? Did you depart? Okay. And, and I'm assuming that you did all the planning. I did do all the planning. It was, it was kind of funny because there was a stage. I, I'm going to fast forward a little bit here and uh the day before we had done the Dalton, the, the, the concierge or the checkout gal at the hotel, and my son was talking to her and I was off in the background. And he's like, yeah, we just woke up one morning and decided to, to, to drive to Fairbanks. And she looks at him all puzzled like, and, and, she says, and she says, oh, well, yeah, most people don't do that. Most people plan for this for years. And he had no idea or concept that I had been looking at this for uh, months and days in plotting and maps. And I mean, there was the things I was doing in order to make this trip happen were consumed, you know, most of it was almost a full-time job at the time I was unemployed. So I could spend the time on it. Mm -hmm. You're planning routes and figuring out all the things that you need to figure out and, and what will you need? And um, your son showed up with his, well, I guess his personal gear and, and sort of uh, left everything else to you. Uh, yeah, as he, yeah, he didn't even have all the personal gear. There's a funny story about that later on, on how we compensated for that. Mm. It's easy to do, though. I mean, you know, you, you just count up. Well, first of all, your dad, you know, you tend to lean on your dad, right? Um, but also the organizer. You know, I can remember being frustrated with my friends when I was young. We would go camping and they wouldn't bring any, you know, equipment. They'd be missing whatever. And I'd always get frustrated and say, why do you forget this? And they say, well, we don't have to worry about it. You've got it. It's it is frustrating. I'm the scoutmaster to the local troop here, and that's the hardest thing is to teach these young teenage youth um, about well the, the motto of being prepared, right? And and 
what you got to go. And yeah, 90% of the time they don't even have matches with them, but they got a stove. (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah. uh, I don't know if it's part of the learning process or maybe it's a personality thing. I'm I'm not really sure if that's something you fix or not. Um, But anyway, so, so talk about the trip. What did it go like? Uh, So even though the, the trials are what make a good story. The the accidents and the mistakes and all that those those are what makes a, a spectacular story. The trip did go wonderfully. On this trip, I thought I was being an old curmudgeon man, and so I decided to not go with maps. Um, everybody listening to the show is now sitting in shock and clicking stop. Uh, <laughs> I had plotted out the entire trip on my Garmin GPS point to point. Now, I didn't plot out, you know, where we were going to camp or any of the sites that we were going to see along the way, but I did plot out the entire route on one great big file and downloaded it onto my GPS. That turned out to be mistake number one. take just a quick break while I tell you about a couple things that I I know you're going to be interested in, but stay with us because when we come back, you're going to find out how this GPS, well, sort of had them going backwards. Well, coming up is Overland Expo West, September 24 to 26 in Flagstaff, Arizona. Get trained, get outfitted, get inspired to explore the world. And Overland Expo is their motto. Uh, again, September 24th through uh, 26th at Fort Tuthill County Park in Flagstaff. Now, um, they say at Overland Expo, it's the greatest collection of Overland adventure companies in the world with more than 300 gear vendors. You can outfit your motorcycle there. You can uh, build your off-road confidence with interactive uh, training and um, seminars, courses. There's there's people there doing uh, demonstrations. And by the way, Bill Dragoo from Dragoo Adventures, you hear him on our rider skills. He's there as well. He's at every Overland Expo. So um, there's authors there, filmmakers, and of course, tons of travelers. This is a huge event. As a matter of fact, they they have the three events. Um, You can even test drive one of the brand new Harley-Davidson Pan America adventure bike there. Um, That's pretty cool. Get your tickets in advance and your camping passes at overlandexpo.com. Again, September 24th through 26th. Um, I don't think you can go wrong. And I don't think you really want to miss this, especially like we've just been through covid Get to this event. Check it out. Uh, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Overlandexpo.com. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. Giant Loop has forged its name by uh, making purpose-built, modular, customizable packing systems that are durable, stable, intuitive, and most importantly, lightweight. And they've done that by focusing on what's needed to serve a product's mission. In other words... They've eliminated extra straps and buckles, no everything in the kitchen sink design, nothing like that. Instead, those purpose-built packing systems that adventure riders can count on. All modular, so you can customize the setup to suit your bike and your riding style. Discover a new world of adventure with intuitive, functional, durable gear that requires basically little more than plug-and-play enjoyment with Giant Loop. Again, go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. The website, giantloopmoto.com. 
Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. GiantLoopMoto.com Well, it's been a number of years that I've been riding on IMS Products foot pegs, but I can still remember that day, that, that first day that I installed them on the bike. The reason that I remember is not because of, of the installation. It's not, that's not what, what sparks the memory. Uh, that was pretty straightforward. As a matter of fact, it only took me a few minutes to put them on. But I was heading out on a ride and I put those on the bike. I went ahead and packed the rest of my gear. And by the time I got all my gear packed, I think I was running late for the ferry as well. So I, I sort of had this deadline. I'd forgotten about the foot pegs. As soon as I got on the bike and stood up, I immediately remembered the foot pegs because it was completely different. It felt like a different bike. It was quite a, a rush to actually play with it as I went out and never had a dirt driveway that was muddy and potholed in, in spots. And just maneuvering the bike back and forth, the extra leverage with the pegs gave me more maneuverability, just gave me more control. And the teeth on the pegs had my feet solid in position. Like it just, it changed the ride. And I remember that day, I can still picture it in my mind. And it's because it was such a drastic change for the ride. IMSproducts.com is their website. Have a look at what they've got. They've likely got a peg that will fit your bike. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. Now, hang on a second. So I have to ask some questions about this. Now, when, when you do this, do you have a backup? Is there anything online? I mean, or, or is it just downloaded to that one GPS? Just downloaded to that one GPS. Easy to see in hindsight, of course. <laughs> no, but what's, it, Kevin, what's the deal with the maps though? I mean, were you trying to, to show your son something that you hear? Was it was sort of proving that, you know, that you're not the, you know, the old guy that, uh, that doesn't get the, the new technology? It's kind of it. I get accused of that a lot. Even, you know, today working with the youth and stuff, I, I insist that everybody has maps and they have a compass and they have old, I've only had one smartphone in my entire life. Uh, I have a tendency to wait and to watch the technology a long time before I even try it. And so I thought, okay, this is time for me to jump headfirst into that swimming pool and make the leap of faith and trust that other people know what they're talking about. And I, I went for it. Uh, the huge problem with doing this, and I have since changed how I run GPS techniques, is each time the GPS would turn off or turn on, the GPS would have a tendency to reset itself. And the GPS would then try to run me all the way back to my home <laughs> in order to restart the trip. And this happened on... Day one, I'd noticed it happening each time you start and turn the bike off. And the GPS was smart enough to realize after three attempts, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm on the route. I'm, so then it would, it would auto-correct itself and we'd keep going. But by the time we got to day three, the GPS unit was small enough. It didn't have enough memory capacity to be able to recalculate the entire route because I was already you know, 3,000 miles away or 2,000 miles away from an 8,000 mile journey. And it just, it couldn't compute it. And the GPS would just come up with the blank screen saying, you know, what are you trying to do? So here we are in Saskatchewan, Canada, um, with no maps and a GPS that only wants to say, nope. 
So hang on, this GPS, well, isn't that just great, eh, technology? I mean, it can drive you nuts sometimes, but why doesn't it know that you're already on the trip? Like, I mean, you know, you'd think any GPS w- would know that. Is it a modern GPS or was it an old one? It's the backpacker's GPS, and I bought the bicycle handlebar thing, and I mounted it onto my motorcycle handlebars. It's the Garmin 62S or whatever it is. It's oh, pretty yeah. common. I have one. I think it's now, now it's, it's old technology, but at the time it, it, it was one of the, the more modern GPSs. Right. But, but it's not really, it's not a road GPS so much that one. No, but keep in mind the goal of any of my adventures are to get off of a road as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> So when it, when it's when it messes up, are you figuring out before you turn around and start heading in the wrong direction, or do you find yourself riding in the wrong direction and then realizing that your GPS is messed up again? So that has a little I don't know a two inch screen <laughs> or something like mm-hmm. that. So in the beginning, it was very frustrating for me to try to figure out. The first one or two times, I did start heading in the wrong direction, but I'd have to zoom out, and then I could you know I could see then where Alaska was, and I could tell where we were. Um, so I knew that the GPS was, so I just start going and the little arrows on it would, you know, keep trying to tell me to turn around and you turn and it would flash. And, um, so eventually I did figure that part out until the GPS just quit functioning. And the other problem with that GPS is it's not the fastest processor in it. So as you zoom in and out, you have to sort of zoom and wait a second for the, for the thing to write the screen again, don't you? Yeah. And the other huge problem with it is, is it doesn't have any detail. If you're zoomed in, it does have detail. A couple of times, um, especially when we got up on the Alaskan highway, uh, we'd be running low on gasoline. And with a map, you can see, you know, small town number one is coming, but large town number two is not but 10 or 15 miles past it. Well, on that little itty bitty screen, if I zoomed out, I couldn't see either of the towns. So I would end up stopping and paying absorbent amounts at, you know, grandma's cafe on the side of the road and paying $4 per gallon. And if I just would have stayed on the road for another five or 10 miles, I would have ended up in Whitehorse, let's say, and paid, you know, $1.50 a gallon for gasoline. What does your son think of of this when it's going on while you're sitting there poking at your GPS, trying to figure out where we're going? What's his feelings on it? Well, that was funny because he was all in on this idea and he had a GPS. It was a Garmin brand. I don't know which one it was. But it kind of reminded me of the side of a TomTom. And the night before the trip, we had mounted that to his handlebars on his motorcycle to kind of follow along. And that was my quote unquote backup. Um, The issue is, is this was a vehicle GPS. It was not a motorcycling GPS. Uh, We were gone for 22 days on this trip and it rained 18 of them. Hmm. So that GPS made it to probably about two or three days before it wouldn't work anymore. So with this trouble, the, and you guys are camping, right? Is it, was that the, your, your mode of travel, camping all, the whole way along? The idea was to camp the whole way along, yes. That's, that's, that was the plan when you set out. That was the plan. <laughs> so do, do you end up abandoning the GPS, you know, saying, okay, it's not working anymore and buying maps? Is that what you ended up having to do? Actually, well, we did end up with maps. And then we would sit down and we would pick a, a town or a destination further up in the road in the general direction. And the frustrating part about me from being a planner is 
I had kind of like a circle route planned. I didn't want to double back and I wanted to go up on the east side of the Canadian Rockies and I wanted to come down the west side of the Canadian Rockies. And since all those plans were on my laptop at home and I had this GPS that wasn't functioning, um, it really was just kind of waking up in the morning and trying to figure out a location in the general direction to get us to Alaska that we were looking at. And we would just plug in search and we'd search for a nearby town and we hit go. So is that kind of a, a neat adventure just doing that? I mean, that, that sounds kind of a, a nice uh, uh, change anyway, at least change up and, and uh, new adventure. It was nice, except for the fact that the default on a, on a car or vehicle type GPS today, modern technology has fixed this problem, but it's to take the shortest and fastest route. Mm. Uh, we ended up in Saskatchewan and I had no idea coming from the lower 48s. We had visions in Saskatchewan of, um, uh, the Bigfoot, the, <laughs> these huge forests, you know, all of our movies have these, you know, wild areas and, and bears running around everywhere and grizzlies. And we get up to Saskatchewan and we had no idea that that was about as flat and as boring as humanly possible you get. And we spent, and the GPS ran us, I mean, that's the straightest shot. It ran us right up through the middle of Saskatchewan, um, nothing for hours and hours and hours. And I tell you, I, I've crossed it many, many times. And, and Alberta is also quite flat. Now, what we're talking about here is the Southern sections. You're talking about doing the Trans-Canada. Um, North is, of course, different. Yeah, we had crossed over into South Dakota at the border there. And we had made our way from that direction because I did, I did really want to explore some of Canada. I just had no idea that the first 15 minutes of exploration would be the next thousand miles of exploration. I just didn't have a clue on that. You said that you were, you were, the plan was to camp. So were you, had you been camping up to this point? And what happened? How did that plan go awry? Uh, so the plan went awry due to weather. Um, night number one, we did stay in North Dakota. We had, fortunately, Mother Nature allowed us to pitch up our tent. And then it just downpoured. Complete and utter just downpour. Soaking, raining, wet. So that was day one, night number one. And being on several wilderness trips myself... I was like, you know, hey, this, you know, trying to keep my son positive. You know, this is what happens. You know, this is part of the adventure. You know, this is exciting. This is a good thing. This is beautiful. And we're huddled up underneath a picnic table and we're cooking our dinner and, you know, trying to remain positive about it. Um, I didn't know at the time is that it would rain almost every rain, hail or snow on us every single day on this trip. Wow. That is a little much. So that, so that starts to get to you and then you start getting hotel rooms. Yeah. So, well, there, well, two things that we did, this was, so this is a big tip. If you're ready for a big tech tip here, laundry mats are a beautiful thing. We had stayed in Saskatchewan. Uh, the mosquitoes there were just horrid, but by the time we, the second night we had put our, our gear away even though the tent is in its own separate bag, it just can't help but to leach in through the rest of your gear. I mean, it's just, it's just a matter of time. So we would stop at uh, laundromats and these old logging towns, these logging camps and stuff like that. They, apparently loggers do laundry. I didn't know that. Hmm. And we would, we would throw our, everything in our tents. We'd be standing there in underwear. I mean, cause I mean, everything was just soaked to the bone. Um, 
And my son then would walk onto the back of the laundry mat. And if there was a tendon there, he would ask him. And if there wasn't a tendon there, there's a box on the back of the laundry mat. And I'm like, what are you, why are you so intent on these boxes? What is going on? And he's like, dad, I'm shopping. Shopping. Yeah. And I says, what do you mean? I'm shopping. He says, well, the temperature's dropped. He says, I need a new coat. In the back of the laundry mats, there's a box of lost and found of things that people didn't pull out of the dryers and things like that that had sat there. And after it sits there for a couple of weeks, they put it in a free box. So he's going through this free box, trying on all this clothing and all these socks fit and all this jacket fits. And he was completely ill-prepared. But here he's coming out with $300 North Face fleece coats and rain jackets. Well, that's, that's sort of survivalist, pants. isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, you know, you're thrown into the wilderness with nothing and you learn to find your way. Well, in this case, maybe not the wilderness, but he's finding his way. I don't know. I think that sounds pretty good. It was, I, if you're ever out there and you're soaking wet and you don't know what to do, just head to a laundromat because um, you will, you will find something in there that you could use. So yeah, he shopped his way all the way up through Canada, Alaska, and back. It was um, it was quite hysterical. So he didn't have enough clothes. He, he didn't have warm gear. And and um, did he know that he was going to do that, or did he just sort of think of that on the way? I just don't think he was prepared for such an adventure at the time. Uh, his riding skills weren't up to the same as mine. Neither one of us had any off road experience of any kind. Um, and I just don't think he knew what to expect. We had installed heated grips on his motorcycle. And then we also did have a heated vest for him, which later on in the trip kind of became silly because people would, at construction zones, things like that, they would tell us, you know, turn your bike off, stop, and, you know, warm up and, and get going. But we had this huge problem that we had to turn the bike off in order to be able to save for fuel mileage. But when we did that, we lost all of our heated gear. Now, at nighttime, we had sleeping bags, so we were okay. But the rest of the time, the only way that we were comfortable was when we were on the bikes. Mm. So they're, they're getting you to stop for construction and telling you to shut the bike off while you sit and wait? Yeah. Hmm. So what happens next? We had a, a spectacular trip. We drove through Canada. We had a lady at Slave Lake uh, completely in totally freak out on us. That was kind of hysterical. We were, uh, we were in a campsite. Uh, Slave Lake is a beautiful place. And a lady was in the campsite next to us. And we'd walked down over. All we had was a little iPod for photographs. That's the only thing I had for taking pictures. I'm not a good writer or a photographer. And we'd asked the lady to take a picture. And the lady literally like started screaming at us, totally freaked out. She had a pop-up camper with a couple of kids she ran away from us, ran out of the camper, slammed the door. We could hear the door lock and we're sitting in this campground, just the two of us hanging out, talking, checking out the, the beautiful rain that Canada has to offer. Um, totally confused. We, we, we were like, and then, I don't know, 20 minutes, a half an hour later, the, the husband came over. I mean, you could just see the red in his eyes and the steaming. And, and he's like, what were you trying to do with my wife? And I was like, and we just, you know, we were totally bewildered as to what, what this guy was talking about. And we're like, what we're trying to do to your wife. I, we, 
we just asked her to take our picture. <laughs> I, I thought that was pretty common. You want a picture of yourself. Back then, there was no such thing as a selfie. Uh, <laughs> and then after that, it was kind of funny because the whole family came out and we ate dinner together and we all were all friendly. And the trip had little tiny nuggets like that in it throughout the entire way. Uh, we met people from all over the world on this trip. We rented a a cabin in between Anchorage and Chicken. And I remember opening the door in the morning and you couldn't even see the cabin next to ours. And it was just pouring, pouring rain. The, the funny thing was, is, you know, I'm looking out and, and I look over at my son. I remember this is one of the times and I, I didn't realize that this was the first time I'd realized that he'd said this to me uh, was, we got to get going. We got to see grandpa, who's my father, who was waiting for us in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. Um, so therefore, we had to load the bikes up and we had to get the stuff onto the motorcycles. And we had to continue on working towards Canada at that time frame. And looking back on it after the trip, that was almost a daily conversation. Where he's trying to rush you along, teach you to move faster. We... We rode bikes and mileage every single day. No, you didn't stop once to stand around and look at things or stay in a spot to soak it up or anything like that? We would do your typical, um, we, we went to Fish Creek to go see the bears. We, you know, of course we drove up the Dalton. Um, you know, we'd stop at all the signposts. We'd take pictures at signpost forest. But even when we went to, um, Oh, what's the name of that? Laird Hot Springs. It's a, well, you hate to say something on a travel show because it's going to fill up right after you say it. Mm, I think it's pretty highly <laughs> publicized anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were there and it was early in the day. It was like, it was like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, oh, look at this place uh, saying to my son, it's, it's gorgeous. And we've been wet and we've been cold and, and, you know, we should really camp here. And it was like, it was like $10 to camp or it was like, eight dollars to just go on in and use the the hot springs and i look over my son i'm like well it's camp and he's like no 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 he says you know we got to we got to get to wyoming to to see to see grandpa so let's just pay the eight dollars to just go into the hot springs so that's exactly what we did you didn't pick up then anything was wrong with the way your son was acting i didn't i didn't know that the trip would be clouded in this in a secret when did you figure out that there's something going on? I didn't figure it out until probably four months after the trip was over. Oh, wow. A long time. So this whole time, you, like, cause th this trip is supposed to be a bonding trip for the two of you, right? That's what you had in your mind. That's what a father had in his mind. Yes. Hmm. Or you guys are going to come out of it. Um, how do you describe that? Your, your thought process on that? My father and I had the most spectacular relationship of, of, you can possibly imagine it's just the bond that him and I have is, is so strong. Uh, and I was really hoping to have the same thing with, with my son. I, the bond my father and I have is unbreakable. It's just, it's incredible. And the experiences and the camping and the tripping and the things that he did for me when I was younger. And then I continued to do it as I got older and as the roles even changed. And as I started taking care of him, the, the trust and everything was there. And as a father, you really, really, really want that with your son. That's, that's the relationship that you, you strive for. Mm -hmm. 
did you think it was going to be the an amazing adventure that would would give you to that that connection, or did you imagine that there was going to be adversity and you're going to have to work through it together? And that's ultimately what's going to give you that connection. I was hoping the connection of the two of us just doing the whole thing. I mean, with, with the adventure comes, you know, the trials that we had to go through to get on the Dalton to learn off-road riding, the, the different skill sets that we brought, the, the, um, it, it's all part of when you commit to an adventure like this, that you need it and you have to rely on each other. And I was hoping that that, that's what would cement something that him and I would have and only him and I would have from now until the end of my days. And as, as you said, you had a lot of little things happen to you. One was you saw a crash in, in front of a tractor trailer. He did that. Before. Oh, sorry. You mean Kale crashed in front of the truck? Yeah. Oh. He did that. We had, we were getting ready to cross the Canadian border and I'd never done a uh, border crossing like that before. Uh, we knew the border was coming up. It was, at this time the GPS was still working. So we knew it was 10 or 15 miles down the, down the road. And I'd seen a gravel parking lot off to the side. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to pull over. We had bear spray with us and we heard both. You could take bear spray and you couldn't take bear spray. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to be completely upfront, honest, and, and open about everything. So we had our passports out. I wanted to make sure the bear spray was clear so it didn't look like we were trying to hide anything. I wanted everything to be perfect because I wanted the crossing to go very, very well. So I pulled off onto this gravel parking lot um, from the one side and a semi was coming in from the other side. And my son's lack of experience, he had no idea that you drive differently on tarmac than you do on gravel. So as he comes into it, uh, needless to say, he couldn't stop his motorcycle. And this was day two, I think it was. And he went sliding right up to the front of the semi. The semi stopped. Um, and his bike, of course, stopped, but there was a whole lot of pride and damage to the bike and he'd actually hurt himself pretty good. Mm. And then there was another one too? The other one wasn't so much of a crash as it was one of those moments where you needed to change your underwear after the fact. We were coming down, uh, we're moving ahead in the story here, but we, we were at, um, we were at Dead Horse. And we were hanging out and we were enjoying and we were celebrating and we were, you know, hey, look at what we did, this great accomplishment. And my son made jokes like there's no Tinker Tank Parade or nobody to welcome us here. There's no huge sign or cake to say that you did it. And a couple of different of the locals had come up to us and said, we don't know what you guys are doing up here, but do you know that there's a winter blizzard coming? And we were like, well, no, we had no idea there was a winter blizzard coming. And they're like, yeah, you guys are in completely the wrong spot. So we had turned the bikes around and we started heading south again. And my goal was to just get over the, just get over the lip of the Brooks Mountain Range. So when the storm came across the tundra, because there's nothing to stop it, at least it would have it to hit the range a little bit before we were set up for camp at, at night. And if we were in the tent, we had quality tent. We had a four-season tent. We had good sleeping bags. We had pads. I wasn't worried about it once we got hunkered down, but we were up on the Arctic tundra and we were completely void of anything up there. I mean, you couldn't, there was no place to even pitch a tent. It was all muskox and wet or muskeg. Is that what they call it? Muskeg. Yeah. 
So we were in a little bit of a trouble and we knew that we had to go. Um, and there was an area where there was some road construction and there was a bridge that was out. And it was one of those that you pull up and you get the little red light and then you wait for X amount of time, whatever the engineers determined it was enough time for the people to come across from the other way. And then you'd get the green light and go. Um, it was horribly soupy and it was semi ruts and it wasn't part of the road anymore because this was a divergence to go around the river and semi comes pulling up behind us. Now hindsight always says we should have just got out of the semi's way. Um, the guys up on the Dalton are concerned about one thing and I understand it. They're concerned about getting the goods up to dead horse and then they're concerned about getting back to their families. And we were warned about that on several different times and we found out that's pretty much the case. You're just, a, you're just in their way, and they just want to get back to their families at the end of the night. So we proceeded to take off when the light turned green, and having no off-road experience, my front tire had jumped from the rut that I was in to the rut on the other side. So now my bike is sideways, and I'm in first gear. And as this is happening, I'm thinking, okay, I panic, and I, I need to stop the bike. I hear the semi behind me shift in the second. <laughs> so I just kept pouring. I have no idea to this date how I made it across, but basically I'd driven my bike sideways across this little detour and I just kept running up through the gears because I could just hear the semi behind us. And each time you just shift into another gear. In the, in the meantime, since my bike wasn't straight, I couldn't see my son and unbeknownst to me, he was even having bigger problems than I was. He was getting bucked all over the place. But he, like me, had heard the semi right behind us. And he was, literally, he was right behind our wheels. There was no humanly possible way he could have stopped in time if we had went down. And it was, it was completely and totally terrifying. The other one on that, one of the tougher pieces of the Dalton was um, we had stopped in... Fairbanks to get, we knew it was going to be a longer trip and we knew that we had all these miles and we'd started off with fairly decent tires. They weren't brand new, but they were definitely, you know, they had more than half of their life. And, um, so we'd found a place in Fairbanks, a guy who works out of his garage on adventure bikes and we'd pre-ordered tires and oil filters and air filters and did all that kind of stuff. And the, the night before we'd set off, we'd stop by his garage and he had outfitted our motorcycles for us. Um, and we'd, the, Put it into a hiding house. Who is that? Uh, Adventure Cycle Works in Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he also gave me some great information on what to do in the Delta and how to, I mean, he was really good. He did, though, warn me. This is one of those things that you look back in hindsight. And he said, you guys aren't carrying enough gasoline. We had exactly uh, four liters of extra gasoline with us. Between no, the two of three you? Liters in, yeah, we had three liters of gasoline and one liter of Coleman fuel. Mm. for the, the stove that we were using. And it was 250 miles from point to point on the Dalton at two different places. We knew the bikes could do 250 miles because we'd already run out of gas earlier on the trip. Um, so we knew it was possible to do it. We, and we started off on this adventure with this guy's warning sitting in the back of our mind. We had gotten over top of the Brooks Mountain Range. We were running across the tundra. We did have comms. So we could communicate. Um, and we were talking about it because we had no idea how much of the amount of road construction and how much fuel that took up stopping and trying to navigate it 
and trying to follow the pace vehicles at the speeds that they wanted to go and not the ones that we wanted to go at. And, and our fuel levels were getting lower and lower and lower and lower. And I knew we were getting close to dead horse. I, I knew that the, the target was in sight. It was, I was ready to go. And his motorcycle runs out of gasoline. We're on the Arctic tundra. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of nowhere. And I remember I started slowing my motorcycle down. I remember him screaming through the comms, if you stop, we both get stuck. If you have fuel in your tank, you need to keep going. And he literally had to scream at me through the comms, telling me that you have to keep going for us to be able to accomplish this trip. And one of the hardest things to do as a father is leave your son out on the Arctic tundra in this horrible conditions with no gasoline. And now that his bike is not, he doesn't have the proper clothing. And I just kept driving and watched him get smaller and smaller and smaller into my rear view mirror. It was, it was terrifying. Why did you not want to stop? Why could you not actually just stop for a moment and sort things out? We just didn't have enough fuel. We were, we knew that we were so, we were already, both of our fuel indicators were, we're at the bottom. We'd already used up all of our spare fuel. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were completely out and we knew the town was close. And we were afraid that even taking five minutes of stopping would, could have taken five miles away. And we couldn't see the town, but we knew the town wasn't that far away. So we were so afraid of, if, even if we lost one mile, that we would be stranded for an abnormal amount of time. Because the semis, they don't stop for you up there. They, they go. We we had we were pelted with rocks and i mean they don't even slow down they cut the corners there were times in there that there's parts on that road that were insanely scary and we just didn't think we'd make it if i stopped so there's your son on the side of the road you keep going you're that close to running out of fuel the stress has to be incredible and you're hoping that you're going to be able to get your bike somewhere to get fuel and then you're going to have to go back again for your son what what time of day is this well, the good news is, is it was August in Alaska. Oh, so, of course. So you've got... The time of the day didn't matter. You've got um, light. We had, yeah, the sun, you know, the, the sun never really did set. It kind of went down below the horizon at the time frame we were there, but it popped right back up again. I want to say, though, this was, you know, sometime after lunchtime, give or take, and this was before we'd heard about the snowstorm coming in. What was the weather like at that point when your son's standing there with his bike and you're riding on? At that time, it wasn't bad. It was probably in the 50s. Um, It was, you know, full-on summer. And it wasn't raining at that exact moment, but it had just rained. So the road, they use some kind of a chemical on the roads, and it gives it the consistency of, uh, well, baby poop. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were driving through. I mean, you couldn't even see our motorcycles anymore. You had no idea. uh, We'd have to pull over. And in order to get the stuff off of our headlights so the oncoming traffic could see us, we had to use knives to scrape it off the front of our headlights just so we just viewed that as a safety thing. And it was so important that other people could see us because our bikes were completely and totally covered with this chloride stuff. Mm, Calcium chloride. Is that what it is? Uh, I think so. Calcium chloride, you put on the road to keep the dust down. And when it gets wet, it just becomes grease. It was horrible. It was, and having zero off-road experience, it was... It was just crazy scary. 
So what happened? There you go. You're riding off. Your bike, your light, your fuel light is on. Your bike's on empty. I have no backup fuel and I'm headed to Dead Horse. The good news is, is we probably were only 20 miles away. We just couldn't see it on the bikes. Uh, I'm in Dead Horse. And although it's not that large of a town with all the the stuff that's going through my mind and I just abandoned my son on the Arctic and there's polar bears and all these stories that you hear and da 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 and and I'm trying to frantically drive around this town, which is tiny, to find this gas station. And I'm looking and I'm trying to talk to locals and they're just trying to get a job done. So they have no interest in, in seeing you or even talking to you. And I I am in a total panic situation at this time. The only way a father can do for the love of his son. And I see a motorcycle that looks exactly like his in town. And I, I just, it, inside of my head, I couldn't comprehend why, how somebody else would have a motorcycle exactly like his. It just, it totally blew me away. So I went over to this motorcyclist to see if he knew where the gas station was. And it turns out it was my son. He got, he got helped. He did not get, well, sort of. So he was there on the side of the road and he got cold and he had the camping stove fuel, the Coleman fuel. And he just had this opinion of what can it hurt? And he dumps it into his fuel tank and finishes out the last 20 miles. (laughs) On white gas. On white gas. On white gas for the stove. Wow. That's, that's pretty good. So first he's finding clothes in the laundromat. Now he's using white gas to, to, to ride his bike. There's, you know, there's some, there's certainly some ingenuity going on there. Uh, yeah. And if he got into town and of course he was just as lost as I was and a local came up to him and saw him and then he did give him what he called the splash of gasoline. And then, so he had a splash in his tank. Now my bike was out, but we eventually did find the gas station and then we did get gas into it. But I do think I did push my bike up to the pump. Mm. Wow. How many kilometers did you get or miles did you get out of your tank the most? 250 is the magic number when we had... You know, the funny thing about travel is, is you have all this advice coming from all these different people. Um, and some of it's really good and sound advice and some of it's not. And as a traveler, you got to kind of filter through what's, what's good and not. And one of the ones that I took with me um, happened to cause us a little bit of angst. It was uh, right at the crossing after we crossed back into Alaska, the United States, we were told don't buy gas in Canada. Can those Canadians charge so much money for gasoline? Don't just don't do it. So we're getting close to the border crossing. We know it's coming up in uh, our tanks were less than half a tank. So and we saw a gas station and the prices were high, just like we were told. So all the facts are all lining up. We cross into the United States and we pull over at the first gas station and it's closed. Hmm. Um, so we were thinking, okay, well, this is America, even though it's Alaska. So there's a gas station every 20 miles. Well, that's not the case in Alaska in case anybody wants to plan a trip there. (laughs) And we go to the next gas station and that one wasn't only closed, but it had boards on the windows and stuff. So now suddenly we have no gasoline and we are in the beginning. So we would ride our bikes up the hills and then we would turn our motorcycles off and we would coast them down the hills until we got to the next hill. And then we'd of course 
turn the bike back on, pull in the clutch, try to guess what gear we're supposed to be in, use it to get back up and then return our bikes back off again. And we did that for probably 60 miles. Do you have a new philosophy about that now? (laughs) (laughs) Something along the lines of fuel up whenever you can get it? I have since learned from some of my mistakes. Yes. (laughs) It's kind of funny with a motorcycle too, because I mean, how much money are you going to save really? I mean, even if you get ripped off for fuel and and I agree, fuel's too much money in Canada. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. So if you can avoid it, avoid it. But I mean, even if you get ripped off, how how much more out of pocket are you? $5? Yes, we can look back at this and we can ask that question and it's a very valid question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, it, it does. It's those things that, that afterwards you probably have a hard and fast rule in your head that said, I will never do that again. You know, from now on it's fuel up when the fuel's available because you don't know. I mean, you're going into a place you don't know. You you don't know if the gas station that it shows on your GPS is open or has been long since removed. Um, You just have no idea at all. And there was some guy on there that said, hey, I want to move into the 21st century and I don't want to bring maps with me. So (laughs) at this point, do you have maps? Did did you buy them? You know, we did get a map of the the Dalton. So we we managed to get that. And since then, I've learned. And by the way, those who are interested in traveling up there, there's the signpost books. Um, I would never travel up there without it. That has so much information in it. And I I so wished I would have had that on on the trip. Um, I knew nothing about it. It's a big, thick book, though. But you could probably tear out most of the pages. I mean, one of the things that I like to do on long trips like this is we bring along one novel, and I'll read two or three chapters. It's paperback. And then I'll just rip those two or three chapters off, and I'll give them to my son. And then I read chapters three and four. And my son will read one and two. And then when I'm done with three and four, I just rip them back out of the book. And they'd be great fire starters, too. That's true, Kevin. But I have to say you're, you're being a bit of a Luddite here because you could just get a Kindle or put the Kindle app on your phone and you can have a hundred books. No fire starter. I don't know if Kindle, yeah, no fire starter. Kindles <laughs> don't start very well. Uh, uh, there's something about, I'm sorry, I'm going to go old um, and I'm going to stay. There's something about the the smell of a book. There's something about the the feeling of the book. There's something about how sunshine doesn't affect a book. There's something about sitting there along a lake or a riverside on a, or along the edge of a mountain and physically touching and, and handling a book. And I've, people have made this argument to me over and over and over again, but I, I still, I just, there's just something about paper that I, I really, really, really enjoy. I, I get enjoyment out of reading a book. I totally get that, you know, and I do agree. I, I prefer paper as well, but the phone's so convenient and you can make your phone smell. That's not, it's not impossible. If you, <laughs> if you want to do that, <laughs> but Hey, Kevin, what, what, while this is going on, are, are, do, are you taking any, like, do you have any sort of plan in your head where you're, you know, planning little father son moments where, you know, you figure when you get to this place, you're going to sit down with them and do this or, or maybe talk about certain things. I mean, is there any of that going on? Well, the entire time, so we'd had it, we'd only brought one tent. It was a four season tent. It was a backpacking tent. Um, and so every night we had, uh, we were camping on the way up the Delta and we were camping along a river and we went down to the riverside and we made dinner together and we skipped rocks and, you know, we talked and we joked and 
in our era of not knowing what Saskatchewan was about, we did have helmet comms. And he had no way of entertaining himself inside of his helmet. So he had, um, uh, I had an iPod with me, uh, the old kind with a little wheel on it. And so I could listen to music and keep my brain active through those means. And he didn't pack one. So he developed a radio station going across Saskatchewan that he would broadcast over the helmet comms to me. And it was a cloud radio. And he would go on and he would, for hours, we'd, I mean, we were driving for hours and hours and hours and we just laughed to tears and he would go, okay, you know, here's a cloud coming up. You know, this one here could be shaped like a dragon, but if you wait, it's going to, no, nothing up here changes. And this is cloud radio. And then I would call in to his radio station, just joking around. You know, I'd be a redneck from Alabama and I'd be a northerner from Minnesota and ask all these cloud questions. And his answer was always the same over and over and over again. He's like, and that's a cloud. Next caller, please. And it was just hours and hours and hours of joking around like that. And it's something that isn't interesting when you retell the story. But when you're in it and you both are laughing and the, and the hysterics are going and you're trying to get over the boredom of the area that we were in and stuff, that bonding moment to me, I thought was something that would carry on forever and ever and ever because nobody else would find a cloud radio station hysterical or funny hmm. except for a father and son riding along the two of you on your bikes on an adventure in a strange place i mean that's yeah, pretty it was, cool it was great <laughs> but all this yeah, time all things. he's he's sort of holding a secret back from you there's a secret there the entire time it was unknown to me and you didn't know it. You, you had no inkling that this was going on. As far as you were concerned at these points that we've been talking about, everything was great. The trip was doing exactly what you wanted it to do. It was. We had, we had wished the weather was better. And actually, we had made the joint decision that when the weather was really, really horrible, since we had to get and see Grandpa all the time, this, this drive to go see Grandpa, even when the weather was at its worst, is actually when we would put the most miles on. We would just throw our heated gear on, we would put our rain gear on, um, and we would just put the throttle on and we would head in whatever direction to the next town that we were supposed to go to. And this isn't your design, as you mentioned. Your, your son is, he's the one's pushing to, to go see grandpa. And, and, and didn't you feel like it's sort of countering your trip? I mean, because the whole idea of the trip is obviously to enjoy it as you go. But when, if you get on it and you start rushing, it's, um, you know, often for me, it's the type of the, the thought process gets me going thinking, well, maybe we should change our destination, our turnaround point. Yeah. The, in the, the funny thing about it is in the part that you will moan at is I had a free pass from my wife with us, his, his half brother back at, in Minnesota to take as long as I wanted to and spend this time with my son. She had, she had understood what I was doing and and she believed in what I was doing. And she thought that this was something that was so important. That she, she said you could have stayed for another month. I, I wanted to go to um, south of uh, Anchorage. Apparently down there is just spectacular scenery and amazing roads. And I heard getting into Valdez is, is a ride that somebody should never miss. And I would try to convince him to, you know, hey, you know, so we're, We'd left Denali. He did stop at Denali National Park and we did do the bus tour and all that. And then we kind of curved up around to the left and we kind of headed towards Anchorage. Um, 
And I'm like, hey, you know, I hear there's some really beautiful things down in here. And he, even the glaciers that we stopped at along the way uh, are beautiful and they're spectacular. And and we get up and I take a picture and I'd be like, okay, you know, let's lock all of our gear down and let's go up on the glacier. And he's like, no, no, you know, we, we really should get back and see grandpa. So every glacier that we went by, instead of going up and touching it and smelling it and feeling it or enjoying a lunch on top of it or something, all those things were just kind of left there on the roadside. Did you ask him at any point? Did it sort of strike you that what's why we're rushing? I was concentrating so hard on trying to make this a team effort and not a father telling his son. So I was trying to take his input Mm -hmm. and incorporate it into the trip. Right. How did the rest of the trip go before you, you see your father, his grandfather? It was spectacular on the ride back from Denali. We met a couple uh, from Taiwan and we rode with them for a day and that's the, that is the neatest thing about this trip. Uh, all the different people. We, we rode motorcycles with people from several different countries. Um, more than one day. There were several days on this trip that we rode in small groups. Uh, we, the same question comes up. You know, where are you going? Where did you come from? Where are you headed? And he had a business card made up. And his English was very broken. But it was kind of cute. He's, he kept answering the questions the same way. This is a three-year road trip that I'm on. With a, he was on a BMW um, 1200 GS. And it's a trip of a million smiles was what his business card said. Well, how many miles are going? He said, I don't know, but it's just the trip of a million smiles. And he thought that pun on, on smiles and miles was, right. yeah, he, he really thought that was funny in his broken English. Uh, and then of course, as we were going across the bottom there of Alaska, there were two guys on V-Stroms uh, that had come up from Mexico city and they spoke broken English, and neither one of my son nor I are bilingual. So you communicate through a series of hand gestures and stuff. But we laughed and had fun and had lunch, and we rode together with them for a couple of days. And then uh, one of the highlights of the trip is we met um, – this was after we were kind of heading back. We were heading south now. We were heading towards Canada, and we came across a couple um, – Gino and Fiona Rondelli um, – they had started in Terra de Fuego and they had worked their way all the way up to Alaska and they were on uh, BMW 650s, uh, the single cylinder model though. I don't know if that was the GS or not. And they were on a 18 month journey nice. and we rode with them for a couple of days. We got separated. Then we hooked up with them again and we rode with them again for a while and then after the trip, uh, one of their destinations was New York City. They had a wedding to go to. They actually swung by the house here in the, in the city, and they stayed with us for a couple of the days. And we showed them some of the sights and got them off the motorcycles for a little while and showed them what the Northwoods was like. And wow, nice. um, it's a relationship that I maintain today. That's really cool. Now, now, did you meet all these other riders at campgrounds when you pulled in, or was it gas stations or flagging each other on the road? or? travel like this and you, you've done it anytime that you pull over anytime that you you go to a gas station or you pull up to a campground or something people just gravitate towards you the curiosity is is amazing they um they want to ask you questions and then when they found out that we were a father and son team that just opened up the floodgates and you get everybody's personal life story and um you get just we were at uh 
now I'm diverging here. We were at the Arctic Circle and a tour bus had come up there. People had paid to ride on a tour bus to say they stood at the Arctic Circle and a bunch of people get off and somehow they had gravitated towards my son. My son likes to do these. It's a game called Magic the Gathering. And this couple from England, they were in Austin, Texas at a Magic the Gathering conference. And my son was just totally flabbergasted by this. And pretty soon my son's life story comes out to them and their life story comes out to us. And we're like, well, Austin, Texas to the Arctic Circle, you know, that's a you know, little bit of a journey. And we learned about their journey. And then we asked the question, okay, so we're seeing a lot of English and Scots people and, we're, you know, we're seeing all these people around and we're like, you, you guys are amazing. I can't believe the amount of travel you do and you guys get the utmost respect. And they looked at me like I was totally crazy. And they were like, you've got to be kidding me. You're on this adventure with your son. In your country, you can't drive across in a week. He says, in our country, you can drive across in four hours. So of course, you're going to see more Brits. Mm. Um, it was just uh, Gino... Fiona, uh, Kale, and myself, we were driving towards Canada and we hooked up with two other people on BMWs and they made a great night of camping because there were six bikes, three different countries. He was a proctologist and she was just finishing up the end to be a gynecologist of her um, medical license. So that made for a great camp night, camp night fodder and good jokes all night long. <laughs> what happened when you met up with your, your father at the end of the trip, his grandfather? I mean, that's what the whole rush was in his mind and in Kale's mind. Yeah, so we did finish out the trip, still not without any incidents or more stops and rain, but we did uh, finish out the trip. We pulled into Yellowstone National Park. And as a little side note, uh, I had a fantasy of riding my motorcycle through Yellowstone because when I was about nine or 10, my father had hauled out two Honda Trail 90s. I think uh, the rest of the world, they call them posty bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he trailered those out to Yellowstone and we circumnavigated Yellowstone on 90cc motorcycles wow. when I was a kid. <laughs> That's neat. <laughs> so I had wanted to go back and kind of relive this experience. Of course, my V-Strom was a little bit different than um, than a posty bike, but uh So we get there and he settles down and he just hung out with grandma and grandpa and ate their food. And grandma told us how crazy we were. And um, he really had the time of his life. And since we had been riding so much during that trip, he actually took this. That was one of the only two places we stayed for two nights. And that was one of them. Um, He had taken that day off and I had an experience with my father, you know, 20 years earlier or something like that, that I kind of wanted to relive. So I went off and, and re-rode the trip on my V-Strom alone and let my, fa- my son and my father develop a relationship. Hmm. Is he close with your, your dad before that? He was. Yeah. He was. I guess the one thing you don't know on this part of the call is my father is still with us today, but he has a very severe case of Alzheimer's. Oh, I see. Um, so he doesn't even know who I am anymore. Hmm. No, that's sorry to hear that. That's, uh, that's gotta be tough to deal with for sure. Especially being so close. Yeah. So how does the trip end out? So from Yellowstone, again, we had this same mentality. So now after traveling, you know, over 7,000 miles, it was a matter of, um, it was a matter of, I want to, 
you know, let's go home, Dad. And we literally just filled up the tanks and throttled it the rest of the way home. And it was kind of funny because I was excited to to get home, get back to the house that he grew up in, you know, to, to see my son, to see my wife. And uh, we get home and I don't even think he unpacked his bike and he said hello and gave his brother a high five and um, said hello to my wife and hopped back on his bike and continued to head north to where he was from. That's it. He was gone. And what happens from the, like, what's the fallout from this? You know, your, your bonding moments and and this trip that you guys did together. Well, I clearly, I was delusional. I thought this was something that would keep us together forever and something that we would always be able to wink, wink and talk about and smile. And, um, a few months after the trip was done and he was back home, I don't even think I found out from him. I think I found out from my parents that the reason he was pushing wasn't to see my father. It wasn't to, to hurry the trip along. It was because his girlfriend was with child and he wanted to get back and support her. Wow. Um, I was about to become a grandfather. I had no idea this was going on and I'd spent just three weeks with my son traveling for 8,000 miles and not once did he confide that in me. He just didn't tell you. Do you know why? I don't know to this day and I, my heart still cries on a regular basis. Our relationship has drifted further and further and further apart since that. I've, I was on a separate motorcycle trip a little bit over a year ago with some friends of mine. We were running up along um, Lake Superior and I happened to see, he's got two daughters now. So I have two granddaughters and I happened to see my granddaughters along the side of the road. Um, so I told my riding buddies to go on and I'll catch up with you guys later on. And I pulled off and chased them down under the shores of Lake Superior. And I got to see everybody and I got to hug my granddaughters and this was in the height of COVID and nobody freaked out. And I sat there and I cried on the beaches and he said, Hey dad, I'll come on down in a couple of weeks. And I think that was the last time he's talked to me. Hmm. Wow. So what, what do you make from all of this? What, what do you, what do you take from this, this whole adventure with your son? Well, I never want to take the adventure back. The adventure was one that's, that's just, it's, it's, uh, you know, the cliche, a trip of a lifetime, I guess. Um, and I, I really don't know. I, I, I don't know. Every day I, I hope my phone rings. I hope my email lights up. I hope I get a text. I hope I get a response. I mean, I, we'll send up birthday gifts and, and wishes, and there's, there's nothing coming back from it. Um, someday this mystery is going to be solved. When that is, I, I don't know. Hmm. But you're still riding. You're still going out on trips. It didn't dampen your spirits for adventure on, on your motorcycle. No, as a matter of fact, I just sold that motorcycle this year. Um, I think that bike had somewhere around 230,000 miles on it. 
<laughs> I'm surprised you got anybody to buy it. <laughs> you know, and not that it's, there's anything wrong with it. It's just that people often ride bikes for such short am- amounts of time that when they sell it, the mileage is so low that anytime I look at my motorcycle or something like yours, that's, that's a lot of miles. That seems like ridiculous. You know, I know I sold a bike one time and I can remember people complaining, well, there weren't so many miles on it. I'm thinking there's not that many miles on it, you know, for the year of bike, but 230,000 miles, that's a chunk of miles. Well, it's <laughs> COVID really helped out with that. If you go to a shop even today, uh, there's no bikes here right now. There's oh, there's right. nothing. If you want to buy one and you see it, number one, you're going to have to pay full price. And number two is you better buy it then and there. So I actually was um, was trying to figure out you know, what the value of this motorcycle was, if it even had any value of any kind. And then... COVID hit and the speedometer had actually been replaced on it. So the speedometer was inaccurate. I knew it was inaccurate. And when the shop had done it, I'd asked them for the parts and to record everything. And of course I show up and I got nothing and I had no idea how many miles were on the bike. I don't know why I didn't write it down um, before I brought the bike in. And then of course the new speedometer has got all these miles on it. So I really honestly don't know the number, but with the lack of motorcycles just in general, turned out that I put a $4,000 price tag on it and I had people calling me on a regular basis. I couldn't believe it. Mm, Wow. Yeah. That has changed things incredibly. Now I haven't bought a bike for years and certainly nothing through this COVID problem we've been having. So I don't know, but I I am aware of uh, everything being difficult to get and, um, and people also making a run for stuff. I mean, it's not just motorcycles either. People seem to be buying stuff at list price um, when being sold used. So yeah, I guess that doesn't surprise me. I do have to say, though, um, the bikes were far superior to our abilities. They did not leave us on the road stranded. In the entire time, I've never had a breakdown. Um, that is one of the things that I am. So it was kind of funny on this trip, after post-trip, you're, you're decompressing, you know, what, what did we take, what didn't we take, you know, that type of thing. And coming from a background of wilderness camping... We actually packed very well. We, we used everything that we brought along except for two items. Um, one item was the first aid kit and the other one was a tire patch kit. Hmm. Not even a tire patch. Wow, that's, that's really nice. And of course, that's some luck in there. A little bit of luck when you jump head first. Mm. So um, aside from the issue with your son... Uh, you, what did you learn from the, from the whole adventure as far as your bike and your preparation, etc.? I have changed up how I, there's a lot of things that I do different. Some tips and tricks is now I always carry a cover with my bike. So when I'm inside the tent and I do run into the rain, um, the rain gear and that type of the rain problems and all that, I put all my stuff on my motorcycle and then I cover it up. And that way I'm still dry inside the tent and my gear is drying while I'm in there. Uh, I also learned, I bought uh, budget motorcycle boots on that trip. That turned out to be a huge mistake, especially as what we were. We had to, there were times we had to literally drive in sandals to get our feet to dry out. Um, anytime there was sun, um, we'd rip our boots off and our feet were swollen and horrible. So I've also learned a good set of boots is wonderful. I also had to change out my panniers. Um, the stock panniers that came with my motorcycle, those had dumped sideways. 
And it's really nice unless it's pouring rain because all your stuff comes falling out sideways. Mm-hmm. So I had to get your more traditional style pannier where you can just lift up the lid and reach down inside of it. I've made a lot, a lot of adjustments um, to what I do and how I do to make the trip more comforting and hopefully to avoid some of those mistakes. And I still carry four liters of extra fuel. Mm. Anything else you learned on this trip? Any, any tips for anybody who might be considering doing something similar? I know I learned, I learned so much. I, I talk to people. Uh, every time somebody approaches you, even the lady that, that freaked out on us earlier in the trip, we ended up becoming friends. And, and those are the things that, that you're going to remember. I think also trying to prepare. There's enough resources out there for anybody to start on any motorcycle. You could have done this on a 250. I don't know if you could have done the Dalton. Maybe you can. I know there's a guy that did it on R1, I guess. So you can. I mean, if this is something that interests you, look, prepare, go, make your stake, make your mistakes. And then maybe in the end, Jim will give you a call and ask you to be on a show. <laughs> Kevin, that, that was great. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you talking about this because I know it's difficult to talk about. And, and I can tell even just from the sound of your voice, but I can also imagine um, having kids myself, how difficult this is to deal with. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing that story. I can't tell you my excitement when you'd responded. I didn't know if this was a story worth telling. I, I, I didn't know that. Kevin, thank you very much. Keep doing what you're doing, Jim. Thank you very much for what you do. I appreciate it. I listen to you on a daily basis until I get caught up, and then you're just going to have to produce more shows. (laughs) I'll do my best. That was Kevin Stratton, and we've got some photos from Kevin's adventure. If you'd like to to see what it looks like and see some of what they were doing, it's all in the show notes for this episode on our website at adventureriderradio.com. Same as all of our episodes, they're all there on the website. You just click on whatever episode you're interested in, it'll take you right to the show notes. All at adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can but hey if you're um, if you're interested in listening to some more episodes we've got all kinds of them at adventure rider radio of course you can get them anywhere podcasts are found we also have other shows so drop by our website and check it out we've got another show called arr raw that comes out once a month it's a roundtable talk style show uh quite a bit different than adventure rider radio but lots of fun and very popular so drop by and check that out and if you are not doing it already we need your support this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work drop by to the website adventure rider 
insiderradio.com. Click on support. And uh, we would love a five-star review. Anyway, you're listening to um, Adventure Rider Radio or Raw, and preferably on iTunes if you can. That helps other people find the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. As I said, my name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Lois Price of Lois on the Loose, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 